it's by the border, it's by the beach, liberal, it's California, people walking around in flip-flops and it's a tourist place. No, it's the front. We've been having thousands of people killed at the border. That's a holocaust what goes on every year. Border art. Humankind has an inherent need to create. Be creative is a mechanism to survive. Border art. Step over the wall. A documentary series by Odd Emily Judaic for States, an initiative of Villa Albertine. My name is Odemili Judaic. I've been making radio documentaries for more than 15 years, and I used to broadcast a show on the history of international migrations on French national radio. I'm currently working on an exhibition and a TV series on the history of international borders, which I'm writing and curating with a French political geographer and now friend of mine, Anne-Laure Amiazari. Last year, as residents at Villa Albertine San Francisco, Anne-Laure and I decided to spend a week on the US-Mexico borderlands. There, we met border artists, curators and academics to learn about the history of border art. As you've heard the first part of this podcast series, I hope you did, you know now that border art is both a political and artistic expression, born in walls and deeply influenced by the Mexican muralism tradition. So it won't come as a surprise to you that the very first muralist who painted the Israeli West Bank barrier were Mexicans. But many still believe that border art emerged in Europe during the 1980s, before spreading all over the world as it was fencing itself off, and as people who faced border closure shared their struggles. But guess what? Border art has roots in America that predate its European recognition, originating with the Mexican-American population living in California, known as the Chicano community. Today, you'll have the opportunity to meet these people and discover why they are regarded as pioneers of border art. And you can trust Anne-Laure, who has dedicated the last 20 years to this emerging artistic genre to provide you with the insights to walk the line between facts and fabricated history. Border art, as border art claimed and named, was born in 1984 between San Diego and Tijuana, so that is an extremity of that border, on behalf of a collective, the BAFTAF, the Border Art Workshop, Taller de Arte Fronterizo, very much linked to Chicano, Chicana um, worlds, and an institution, a cultural institution that was very active at the time, called the Centro de la Raza in San Diego. Uh, so, Anne-Laure Amiazari, would you say that border art was born from Chicano art? Yes, a lot of the claims of border art come from Chicano Chicanix art, but one of the other origins of border art, but it was ne which was never called as such, is the Berlin Wall, where some artists began to challenge. Uh, the splitting of Germany and this um, border between the two worlds, Western and Eastern, communist and capitalist, very early on. So for people who do not know of this very specific uh, art and cultural scene in Tijuana, San Diego, border art is murals, political murals, this kiss between the Russian president Leonid Brezhnev and the uh, President Erik Honecker on the wall, a very uh, famous kiss from the time of the Cold War. Uh, and so there is a heritage of this wall, uh, political wall painting that we find, for example, in Jerusalem today on the security wall that the Israeli has built to protect themselves from the West Bank and from the Eastern Jerusalem. But it goes way beyond. So uh, this is also this is why it is so important to study uh, where it was born. I mean, 
to know what happened in the 80s and 90s in uh, the um, Tijuana, San Diego area, knowing that uh, this linkage between the two cities is very old because for a long time, Tijuana was not linked with through transport and to train or rail, ra- uh, I mean rail or road was not linked to Mexico but to the United States. So it is one of those oddities of national construction and territorial construction that also sets up for a very particular landscape over there. So it's it's interesting that it's all started as a very site-specific art production, a site-specific meaning that uh, the uh, work of art incorporates the notion of the importance of the place it is produced in and displayed in. And in this case, while the border artists try to transform the imaginaries or representation of the border and to convey the importance of the border as a line to be crossed. Border art. Step over the wall. Step two. Chicano art. Come on, let's step over the wall. Anlor and I are now on our way from San Francisco to San Diego. As we drive down and pass through cities with Spanish names, the long history of California flashes through my mind. I think about the fact that before the Mexican-American War, California was part of Mexico, and it was vast, extending south to the peninsula known as Baja California, which remains Mexican territory today. But in 1848, the Treaty of Peace, Friendship, Limits and Settlements between the United States of America and the United Mexican States, concluded at Guadalupe Hidalgo, resulted in the loss of 55% of Mexican territory, including California, where 20% of the Mexican population was living at the time. Suddenly, these people became foreigners in their native land. They never crossed the border. They've been crossed by the border. And even to this day, they feel like the former California has been split into two pieces. They have never recognized the displacement of the dividing line, nor a concept of two Californias. In their eyes, as in their hearts, California and Baja California remain united. After the 1848 war, Mexican-Americans acquired American citizenship against their will, and for a very long time, they felt like they were not Mexican nor American, but stuck in between. They felt betrayed by their motherland, Mexico. And within the US, they confronted social discrimination and urban segregation. They were often prohibited from speaking Spanish, and they were confined to living in barrios and colonias. Railroads and bridges became dividing lines between the Mexican-American population and the rest of the society. As they were socially downgraded, they became working-class citizens, called by a derogatory name, Chicanos. Later on, Thousands of workers came from Mexico to find a job in the North. So little by little, as they were all marginalized and victims of racial prejudices, they gradually formed a distinctive community advocating for its rights. In the 1960s, a decade marked by the proliferation of civil rights movements, this community started to reverse the stigma. They united behind the flag of a utopian nation, Aztlan, the Aztec mythological territory. And they identified themselves with La Raza Cosmica, 
resulting in the blending of all races. And then there began cultural resistance, supported by community centers, the most renowned ones being La Galleria de la Raza in San Francisco and El Centro Cultural de la Raza in San Diego. That's how started what we call now the Chicano movement, whose political and artistic statements became the basis for border art. And San Diego, the last city before the border, become the hotspot for Chicano art, poetry, cinema, literature, and of course, murals. As Anne and I arrive in San Diego, she introduces me to her colleague and friend, Norma Iglesias Prieto. Norma is a transborder scholar. She says that she's living in Tijuana, San Diego, treating them as a single town divided by the border, much like Berlin once was. In 1982, Norma co-founded in Tijuana a think tank specializing in border studies. Colegio de la Frontera Norte. She's now retired, but she used to teach Chicano studies at UC San Diego. Since she has known Arnoa for years, we meet her at her place and have dinner together. She shares insights into the emergence of artistic centers in the Mexican-American community in the 60s and how they became a cornerstone in the Chicano political movement. Chicano art is, in, in essence, is a political expression. Chicano culture is a political issue. So they know when the, what they call the del movimiento start, they know that the best weapon was culture and art. Art is a tool. It's a political instrument. So those centers promote political participation, promote not only culture, no, they are really articulators of the community. But it was difficult because when you, you are part of a community that have been treated as second-class citizen, mm -hmm, it takes time to trust in your culture. It's difficult to recognize your pride because there's so many laws against Mexi be the fact of being Mexican, no? denying your language, denying your citizenship, denying you your existence, treating you like an invisible, only hands to work, no? manual labor. So they have to develop a, a strong, complex strategy to reconstruct the pride, la raza. But the la raza in this colonial history, we're talking about the populous, the non-educated, because La Raza is not promoting at all racism. So when they decide, yes, we are La Raza, we are the pueblo, we are the poor, we are the workers, and we are proud of who we are. So La Raza, if, you, if it's mentioned in Chicanos or in the north part of Mexico from a popular community, means us. So Centro Cultural de La Raza is the cultural center for the people, for the community, from the bottom to the top. Uh, the other thing is that in the Chicano movement, uh, especially in Chicano art product, uh, uh, cultural production in general, they develop a strategy of four steps. The first step was affirmation. So affirmation was say, yes, I'm from Mexico and I'm proud. No? Yes, we use different kind of aesthetic of the color, that's okay. But it was not enough because, uh, no, for, uh, uh, there's a mistake. The first step is resistance. And resistance is a mechanism to respond to our cultural aggressions, no? to a stereotype, to denying. So you say, no, I'm not that way. So it's only responding without telling the, the, the other, well, I'm not that way, but I am this way. So resistance was not enough, so that is why they dedicate a lot of energy to affirmation. And when you see the art of 19, late 60s, 70s, even early 80s, it was teaching them who you are, telling you your past, telling you your story. When you see the murals no, in Barrio Logan, in, in, in Chicano Park, or in the Great Wall in Los Angeles, it's telling you story because you were 
denying the right to have your story. And it's very clear when you analyze film or you analyze art, say 80% of the piece is dedicated to affirmation. Well, that's a moment, historical moment in which they have to create pride. What's the first thing they have to do? Pride. Otherwise you disappear. Chicano culture survived using art as a collective therapy. During the 70s, El Centro Cultural de la Raza in San Diego in particular became kind of an unofficial home for Mexican-American artists. Here, they could find spaces to create, to collaborate and to showcase their artworks. Plus, the cultural center was financing the creation of murals which rapidly spread in the Barrio Logan the historical Mexican-American district in San Diego. Welcome to the Chicano secret land. But wait a minute. Instead of following the smell of tacos and the rhythm of corridos, let's follow the sound of cars along the highway pylons of concrete. I know it seems strange, but trust me, the walk is really worth it. We are now at Chicano Park, with gardens, picnic tables, and playgrounds, right under the Coronado Bridge, which is also a freeway. Not the best place to have a park, that's for sure. But as soon as you are here, you forget the cars, the pollution, the noise, and you are astonished by the colorful paintings. Here is the largest concentration of Chicano murals in the world. Pillars of the bridge serve as canvases for more than 90 murals. Chicano Park looks like an open-air museum, telling the story of the Mexican-American community's fights. It opened in 1971, after 10 years of demonstrations, 12 days of occupation, and a human chain formed around bulldozers. Because this place, which was first a parking lot, was initially slated for conversion into a highway petrol station. Fighting for social justice is a never-ending story. Descendants of the Chicano movement have never stopped bridging. And when Onlor and I arrive at the park, there's a new monumental mural in progress. It's called Brown Image and it's a tribute to lowrider culture, depicting the brown image car club history. So it's been painting with the kind of airbrush techniques used on the cars it represents, with only two very symbolic colors, brown and gold. Roberto Arpozzos is one of the numerous muralists of all ages working on this mural. He takes us to the five-story scaffolding to have a better perspective on the mural from the bottom to the top. We are very lucky because no one is going to see that so close. Brown Image Car Club was around in this time and they literally hanged out here like many other car clubs and, and they were one of them. They have been around since 1970 or so, and they were here when the takeover happened. Um, the takeover being when Chicano Park was cleaned by the community and converted into a park. And they, it's called the takeover, as opposed to the, something that's given to you. <laughs> so a lot of the images you see, it, as we go, you'll see uh, the, their cars at the park. Okay, so let's try it. I'll leave that here, and we keep going. Uh, we're using the two sections, so you a lot of the murals, then you have the two sides. So this is the uh, you know an early picture of their of, of the club, selected from a collection of photos that Henry has in his album. So it's if you look, you think about it, think of somebody's personal album. Henry uh, Rodriguez, he is the president or um, the one that's heading the 
um, Brown Image uh, contact. He's really uh, the one behind getting the scaffold and providing uh, the, the, the mural for artists to then interpret his me the message of the car club. So Henry and Janine, his wife, are also up here. You'll see them in the, in the mural and, and uh, part of some other family. Another event here at their uh, reunions. You see everybody having a good time. It's very important, I think, for, for Henry and the group to, to see the, themselves being very happy. Having a good time and fighting a good too. Time. And fighting too, no? Well, the, 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 the fist here is not necessarily uh, for fighting. Okay. We call it Chicano power. So whenever you see anybody go like this, it's Viva la Raza, Chicano Power. You know, we say Chicano Power, Black Power, yeah. The pride of San Diego. Yeah. <laughs> see what else is What's your head on this? And this, um, what we call a placaso or a tag or a graffiti, was done in 1970 or 72 or so, and the, some guys got on top of each other and made it up this high and, and, and claiming their name here. So you'll get that feeling of going back in time, really. Here we have a, a scene of uh, what is now the Chicano Park Museum and back then it was the Chicano Federation right next to the park. And you have the, a lot of the lowriders from Brown Image Park there. So that's an actual photo that's going to go here. So you're telling the whole history of Chicano Park on, right, on those pipes? something that Henry and Victor talked about as bringing the history that is not anywhere else. Okay, watch out with this. Uh, okay. okay, watch out with your hands. Okay. So this is in progress. And that above is painted by Alejandro Morales, another artist. And I'm curious to see how you're working. So basically I gotta set up with the ink. This is my ink right here. Uh, let me see how much I got. I got enough, I think. I'm shaking it up, but this is called a candy paint. It's a root beer color. It's gonna go, I'm gonna apply it on this uh, surface with the gold flake on it that we've been putting on the pillar. Now I'm gonna plug myself in. I got gotta set myself up with some ink some of the paint the candy paint that's gonna go onto the mural gotta shake it up really good because it's really thin it, it's a uh, transparent kind of like a water like watercolor application it's pretty similar the way this paint goes on the wall it has to be worked in layers you cannot spray and solidify your line quality with this Gotta test the air. Air is down on my, it's a double action airbrush. So, air is down, ink is back. Okay. So there's a lot of control, you can't just apply. You gotta be really careful with it. You gotta play with the viscosity and distance. It's, it's really, Delicate. So then I'll work throughout the whole car. Thank you. Wow. My name is Alejandro Morales Riveron. I am from San Diego, California. I love my city. I love what's happening here with the mural. I thank Roberto Pozos, Victor Ochoa, Henry, his wife, everybody that's working on this mural. Thank you. And enjoy the outcome. And uh, I don't know, hopefully, Sooner than later. <laughs> Very nice Thanks to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here. I will, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Is it shining in the night? Oh, yes. When the sun hits this, maybe we'll get to see it up there as the sun is hitting up above. But let's go check it out. We are just under the cars now. Fifth level. Yeah. Like an elevator. We've reached the fifth level. This is what it's going to look like. You can see the gold, like la pyramid, gold. La pyramid del sol, no? Yeah, it's just really right shining. Here. It's just incredible, just the amount of shine. Wow. What a <laughs> temple. Yeah. 
I had uh, a person came up with me, walked up here, and felt how they felt walking up the pyramids in Teotihuacan. I thought that was a very interesting metaphor. And, you know, he actually put it in words what I felt all the time going up here. Uh, so I, I think being under the bridge and just bridging, it's symbolic on its own. And so, so we take it for granted. We're here all the time. You ask anyone, where's your kind of park? And we say, under the bridge. Just, you know, you can't get lost. <laughs> so yeah, it is uh, ironic, you know, we're bridging and, and that poster is commemorized up here. Now that we've seen the Chicano Temple, it's time for me and Anlor to meet its protective god, Victor Ochoa. Victor is another pillar of Chicano Park. For the last 50 years, he's been a tireless activist and prolific muralist who painted more than a hundred murals, all of them trying to raise social consciousness. Victor is now considered one of the pioneers of San Diego's Chicano art movement for being a member of several car clubs since the 70s and the co-initiator of the Chicano Park community murals. But most of all, for co-founding the Centro Cultural de la Raza in Balboa Park and the Border Arc Workshop Collective, founded a bit later, in 1984, so we'll come back to its history in the third episode of this podcast series. Today, Victor is one of the last witnesses of the awakening of the Chicano art movement in San Diego. You know, the park is, uh, I think, unique from the 60s. At one time, you know, before World War II, this was kind of more white, more white neighborhood. When the, all the houses had views to the bay, beautiful bay. So most of the white population had that beautiful view, but then during the war, they started putting uh, shipbuilding and, and canneries and all along the water. So they blocked the view of this community to the water. So they always wanted a park, but then they moved out. And so the poor people, blacks, whites, and primarily Mexicans. They moved into Logan Heights. And they still wanted a park, but, uh, you know, of course, because it's Mexican, they're not going to get it. So we found out they were going to make a parking lot for um, the highway patrol, the police, to go into the freeway. And uh, when people found that out, they didn't allow it. So they protested, and they blocked the construction of the parking lot. And then they, we stayed boycotting it until we, we finally got a, uh, proclaimed the park. And it was used in a little small area. And then throughout the years, it's been growing. We've been getting more and more pieces to the park, you know, to, including 2.3 acres at the bay, all the way to the water. And we maintain it. This is going on our 52 years. And um, unfortunately, with the pandemic, we haven't done the normal 35,000 people that come to our anniversaries, you know, big event. But um, the spirit, I think, of the community has stayed here. Now we're, we're a national landmark, which it's, it's respected nationally by the United States. And we're still painting. We're still, we're still working on it. We just got a museum, which is that building right behind me, the brick building. It's kind of new new for us. But it's all, it, I think the whole time it's been, nothing has been easy. Nothing, nothing has been like, oh, they want to give this to the, you know, all, you know it's, it's always like bureaucratic struggles, going to city council, going, you know, it's, it's been marches to the public buildings over there downtown. So we're, we're used to, um, you know, struggling for lights, you know, sidewalks. The restroom, you know, still, even to get a restroom, we have to struggle to get it put in there. Can you please tell me why uh, you think you need a museum when you have such a, um, um, oh. an outdoor museum? Well, here? yeah, no, the mural definitely act as kind of like an outdoor museum, but the the fact is that they, they haven't saved anything about our, our history 
or art or even this community. So we're completely underrepresented as a community. You know, this is the, the most cross-border in the world, and it doesn't mean anything to them. You know, it's like going to the museums. They never think about putting anything in Spanish, for instance, even though it's the most transited border. You know, we, we're in bit more than invisible. They, we're ignored. You know, we're, we're like an ignored population. So the need of a museum is, I would never even ask that question. We, we need, you know, blacks, Asians. Uh, I know they have like the Jewish uh, Holocaust Museum. They have stuff like that that they think is more important. Than, you know, to me, been having thousands of people killed at the border, you know, that's a Holocaust to me as far as what goes on every year, every year here. So, to answer your question, you know, uh, I'm I'm uh, uh, trained by my grandfather in ar archival stuff. So my grandfather told me since I was a kid, if you don't save your your history, you you know they're not gonna they don't care about your history. Or, and I, I worry a lot about who knows about what happened 40 years ago. You know, so. Was it just erased? So I'm continuously doing things on the mics and, and t TVs and because I'm worried about about that. I'm trying to do like a lot of 15, 20 second video, virtual videos, because that's what the young people, they don't pay attention to anything that's over that. You know, I, I was doing stuff that were an hour. He said, nobody's going to see that. How about your programming on radio? How much do people pay attention? All right, folks. I hope you're paying attention. And most of all, I hope you'll go and visit the Chicano Park Museum, which opened its doors in October 2022. Because if the Chicano movement is now over, Chicano art is still alive. You're listening to Border Art, Step Over the Wall. Step two, Chicano art. Thanks to the Chicano Cultural Centers and Chicano Studies, a new generation of artists and scholars acknowledges the heritage and perpetuates the legacy of these pioneers. Today, they are adding their own brick to bridge the wall. As an example, for Sara Soleimani, who graduated in art history, theory, and criticism at UC San Diego, where she now teaches Chicano studies, it was important to invite Mexican-American artists of all ages and from both sides of the border to exhibit their work together and to exchange practices. Anne-Laure, Norma, and I are talking with her at San Diego Public Library, where a second iteration of the Occupy Third Space show is on display. I curated Occupy Third Space in 2014 at Space for Art, which is an independent artist-run space in San Diego's East Village, which was a location at that time where you had all of the encampments of homeless people, that we were a ground floor exhibition inside of an artist-run space that's a residency house and for many artists staying there for a while and doing work there. Um, and so I was trying to kind of hold institutions to their responsibility as well by starting in this artist-run space, getting hopefully some exposure, right, um, and then having other people that would find the work and the argument and the premise of the show worth, you know, continuing. So it was kind of a conversation that I wanted to start, and I was hoping that this would inspire other projects, and it would, you know, but, um, and also something that we should all use in our pedagogy, in our dissemination about the history of border art, trans-border art, and also kind of understanding all the origin and authenticity is really hard to locate and pinpoint there is a kind of responsibility to highlight where particular movements 
are happening and then on this border that we reside on and that we are working in there are histories that are often washed out or erased by other parts of the world because sometimes they may be more ephemeral more spontaneous and so in the history there have been parts of that history that weren't necessarily documented the way that the traditional academia wants us to document things, right? And the car club culture, although it has often been misunderstood, you know, or uh, it kind of has been conflated with gang culture. Um, there have been like a lot of police brutality situations or them breaking up their events when that's really not what car club culture is about at all it you know like any other collective that's really surround itself around something positive the arts teaching kids about cars and like how to make fix cars and, and the art that is displayed on those cars as well symbols of um, cultural pride and affirmation right um, yeah I think that they are very important for our community is basic to understand the importance of affirmation. All of these expressions uh, of artistic expression, cultural expressions in Chicano, Mexican-American communities of pride are like the first step in order to visibilize yourself, in order to recognize and function with pride when you have been denied, ignore, silence. And to go back to the exhibition, what happened in between those two exhibitions? Well, um the first exhibition get really good reception, you know, it broke a lot of barriers, I think, of art reception in general, especially students from UCSD, you know, weren't really engaged in that kind of like, that level of community engagement of breaking class barriers and, you know, because we, we had like people coming in off the streets homeless people coming into the exhibition and they were even playing drums with the band that was playing and it was kind of a truly like art for the by the people for the people kind of uh, event right it was really and not just the people as some vague category but you know for subaltern people like and working class you know and when you have these artists run spaces when you have a public show um, when it's accessible, you know, the way that that show was, um, you're not ha being charged to enter. So all of these decisions, things that we may take for granted as an art audience, or even the kind of courage to walk into a gallery, or even the, you know what I mean, like the thinking that I belong there to look at this, right? Um, often we just don't have control about how figures of people that look like us are represented, right? and we never get to see those images. So what we have seen in the, art, in the arts, visual arts, and arts in general, it's a, an incredible process in which so many young curators, you know, some new spaces, new collectors, new students, uh, new uh, exchanges and uh, exhibitions in which San Diego artists were invited to Tijuana, Tijuana artists here or the Baja California. So this is growing and growing and growing and growing. And Primarily, Chicano art was a Mexican-American working class movement, but it has spread to a broader population thanks to the Bracero program initiated in the 1960s. This labor program allowed thousands of Mexican and Central American folks to be employed in the U.S. fields and borderlands factories, called maquiladoras. This influx of new immigrants, mixing with the original Chicano people, gave rise to a larger community sharing the same struggles. Because they lived together in barrios and colonias, where they suffered from the same discriminations and because they were both facing border issues as they were traveling back and forth to visit relatives still residing in the other side of the U.S.-Mexico boundary. That's the reason why we find people born and raised in Mexico as part of the Chicano movement. And having so much in common, the two groups have blended and generated a new Spanish-speaking community using art to tell their own stories, their own concerns, their own words. Because as you know, history is always written by the victors.
That's why the Chicano community developed a strong counterculture based on linguistic creativity, from code switching to Spanglish. That's maybe the reason why Sara Soleimani has focused her current exhibition on the theme of plastica y palabras. Word and visual arts. And I had to pick the right concept that really was fitting what I was trying to uh, express, which ironically, I'm not, I guess not ironically, but it's hard to put into words, right? What I'm trying to express predates written language and I want to look at the relationship between word, palabra, which predates written language and can take so many different forms, uh, highlights the kind of oral history aspect of it, that oral histories are the first to be erased, you know, um, and that would be a whole other discussion to go into that, how we can't trust history from a Western perspective. We can't trust our stories to be told by our colonizers, obviously, right? It was in L.A. the first time, I think was 1979. I have to check the year, but I think it's the late 70s. The first Los Tres, it was the name of the exhibition, in which three Chicanos were invited to LACMA, Los Angeles Museum of Art. It was the first time, because they were not important enough to be invited in museums. Right now, that's another thing. We have museums that are only for, about Latinos, a lot of galleries about Chicano, sorry. Formally, Chicano art is recognized as part of an American, part of an American art or universal art in general. We don't have to justify that it's art, no fight to be recognized. That not necessarily means that inequalities are erased. The majority of our students, the majority of the artists, the Chicano artists today, come from low-income families. Many of them are the first in their family that they that they graduate from school. So inequalities are there. Most of the museums are private collection. It's difficult. They have their principal. So you could have access to some of them, but you need you cannot depend on them. Otherwise, what we are going to do is reproducing exactly the hierarchic colonial structure of those institutions, no? So it's because what the centros culturales are promoting is decolonializing your minds, decolonializing your practices, and it's really difficult. Because even the language we use, Spanish, English, come from the principle of the conquistador. So it's... A, it's, sometimes it's not easy to see when you don't experience that. It's healing. You know? Cultural center played a very important role in terms of rituals of healing. And the ritual of healing comes with artistic expressions. And it's better to work together. If we keep thinking in the principle of how Chicano culture functions, is the community. Chicano art was always a community production. And it's interesting because when you debate with these experts on contemporary art, no, what is the trend of contemporary art? It's art that is for the community, that art that helped to create community. That's the way Chicano art was created. So we have like 30 years in advance. They have experience of 30 years in advance in terms of what to do public art. And they don't have the category or the, the concept before. It was normal, organic, natural. We need to do it that way. First, because we don't have resources. Second, we, ho we have to support our communities. And third, because they argue, and I love this quote, they say, la cultura cura. Art heals, culture heals. So it, it, what I'm trying to argue is that contemporary art discover many principles that they were organic, basic, natural in Chicano art, that is community-based for community, no? by, for, and about the community.
Walking in Chicano Park, I'm surprised to see that this place is not only the epicenter for Chicano murals, but also the site of a gigantic memorial for people who have disappeared at the border. Everywhere around the pillars of the coronary bridge are altars with flowers, pictures, and personal messages. The park remembers the violence of the border and remains a place to pay tribute to the victim of migration policies. As I reach the edge of the park, a very powerful mural catches my attention. It's called Undocumented Worker. Painted on a pylon, it's intended to be read from the bottom up, and the images depict the journey of a Mexican worker leaving his country to work in the U.S. There's a river, then mountains, where helicopters are looking for the illegal migrant, and then tunnels, walls, and even monsters trying to prevent him from crossing. Finally, at the very top of the mural, the undocumented worker stands under the heat of the sun next to a pile of bricks. He breaks the wall into pieces. The last sentence of the text below the images reads, Barriers, walls and fences must be moved, must be broken down, between countries, between people, between neighborhoods. Si el fandanguito no fuera causa de mi perdición, causa de mi perdición, si el fandanguito no fuera causa de mi perdición, ay. The colors of the undocumented worker mural are so vivid and bright that it seems to be new. But it was painted in 1979 by Michael Schnorr, who started painting in Chicano Park with Victor Ochoa. Michael died 10 years ago, but throughout his life, he documented, taught about, and preserved the Chicano Park murals. The restoration project started with his first masterpiece, Undocumented Worker. That's why it seems so recent. Maintenance. Maintenance is precisely what comes after resistance and affirmation. Remember that Norma said the Chicano strategy was a four-step process? Well, maintenance is the third. And maintenance means that they recognize that the problems do not only come from outside. That is very problematic to victimize yourself. No, I'm poor of me that I have been treated in this society, so racist, that ignore me, that you have to have a level of self-criticism to talk about machismo, violence, uh, corruption, whatever is impacting your community from inside. So maintenance is very important. And then the four. And the fourth step is not a step, it's like a premises or it's like a principle in Chicano culture that is mestizaje. And mestizaje, especially if we think in mestizaje in the United States, is the principle that we are the result of our history, you know, from the different kind of ethnic Mexican ethnic groups, plus the Spaniards, and in the case of the United States, plus the American culture. So mestizaje is the principle that we are the result of fusion, racial fusion. But right now when we talk about mestizaje, it's the cultural uh, fusion that you could mix, that the Spanglish is part of, no? that you mix in English and Spanish or whatever. So for example, think in music. Well, when we analyze any genre, it comes from the blending this genre and the other. No? And it's a never-ending study. There's nothing really pure. And so mestizaje is very helpful. But at the same time, like any other concept, could be very problematic. And the problematic of this is romanticizing the blending or romanticizing, like ignoring all of these tensions, uh, violence that is in the mestizaje. Because we are what we are 
for a lot of fights before. There's a lot of power structure behind the mestizaje. It reminds me of Gloria Andalsua's words, the famous poem Borderlands, La Frontera, the New Mestiza, in which she says, Cuando vives en la frontera, people walk through you. The wind steals your voice. To survive the borderlands, you must live sin fronteras, be a crossroads. So inhabiting the border means carrying the feeling of being split into parts and at the same time being a hyphen between those two parts. That's the inherent contradiction of borders, to divide as much as to unite. Borders are separation lines, but also places where two countries are meeting and sometimes blending. Victor Ochoa, veteran of the Chicano movement, can testify on this. He is a border creation. So let's go back with him to Chicano Park, where artists keep building bridges against border walls. My parents were undocumented and then they kicked us out to Tijuana. So I have, currently I have a home in Tijuana and one in San Diego. So to maintain that dual nationality feeling, because a lot of people, they live at the border, you know, they, in San Diego, they don't know anything that's going on in Tijuana. And in Tijuana, you know, they, they have kind of like an inferior complex with the United States. So it's kind of a weird, weird uh, relationship. So I, I feel that for me, it's good to go live in Mexico, live in the, in the United States. I have to get out of the United States. You know, it's one of those things that I think It's important to me, and I think uh, people need to experience, you know, the what it is to be Mexican. Because when you're living in the United States, you're oppressed. Dog, you know, you're you're not a regular human being. It's almost like we get classified like um, in slavery times. You know, like we're two thirds human, not not really full blown human. So that. That's been a weird, weird sense. I know my mother that passed away recently at, at 93, when I used to take her from here to Tijuana, which is only 15 miles, when she got on that side, she would kind of like uh, scream, Viva Mexico! She was like all re-energized. She felt like she, like she could breathe or something. It was weird. Know, during a lot of people say, well, what happened to the Chicanos? And they, you know, they're still hard-headed people like myself. You know, I'm, I'm 73. I, I'm, I still use that term a lot. Of, they're, they're supposedly coming up with, you know, all these new terms that we don't really agree with. You know, there's like uh, Latinx used a lot. You know, whatever the hell that means. You know, and I work in universities and stuff like that, and where they say that they're doing that to be inclusive of all the different students but that's mainly an institutional kind of like a, from a university point of view here in the community we don't use that term you know so we never used uh, Hispanic or Latino uh, I didn't even use Mexican-American ever you know I, I'm writing a book called Chicanosaurus at the border And I consider myself a, a border phenomenon like that, you know, born in the United States and then during Operation Wetback back to Tijuana, went to school in Tijuana, kind of became a Mexican and then came back to the United States to keep on going to school. And then, you know, I was back in L.A. and then I came to San Diego to be closer to my parents. And so San Diego and, and Tijuana, it's been like, like a border zone, you know, it's a border zone that then I have Sentry, for instance, it's a card that's cleared by the FBI and all that shit um, that I can go in a lane and cross the border in 10 minutes, you know, so, you know, it's, I feel like 
the border doesn't exist to me anymore with that card. No, I love it. I mean, it's, I couldn't survive without it because I'll go take somebody to dinner over there or lunch and then come back, you know, and go back. You know, I can, I'm like a ping pong ball. I go, I stay in my house down over there or over here. You know. Victor Ochoa is a very good example of this population now living in between, in the third space between Mexico and the U.S., sometimes called Amexica or Mexamerica. However, while it became easier for Chicanos to cross the border over time, the situation for new migrants from Central and South America has only deteriorated. So since the 70s, the Chicano community has welcomed people from diverse nationalities and with diverse artistic expressions, all concerned about migration and border issues. I try to collaborate with different um, nationalities, black uh, artists, white artists, uh, Asian artists. Also, as long as it keeps to the issues, Chica what what Chicanos stand for is usually things to do with issues of our community. So as long as it stays within that, if some people are Ku Klux Klaners, we're not going to let them paint something about Ku Klux Klan, you know, so we do have to screen some shit out, you know, but we, uh, we're open to having people work. As far as everybody wanting to do something about the border, you know, we got a lot of work to do. I mean, we've been working here for 50 years, but we got a lot to do. You know, it's, it's not like break time. <laughs> we're, not, we're not on vacation yet, although I'd like to be on vacation right now. I wish you could have some rest, Victor. Unfortunately, the U.S.-Mexico border has never been as closed and militarized. The world has never seen as many border walls, and the number of deaths and injustices at international borders has never been as high. So the fight against borders closure is getting bigger as the community of people concerned by migration policies and inequalities expands. United people against bordering in the U.S., but also abroad. Because just like Chicano art, border art is creating a community, a growing community of people using art to build bridges instead of walls. Time has not come to take some rest. On the contrary, since the 80s, artistic expressions have exploded at the border. Between San Diego and Tijuana, the Baftaf Collective began exploring new practices, such as land art and performance art. That's how and where the term border art first appeared, with artworks created right on the dividing line, but also with artworks confronting the internal boundaries within the Chicano movement, addressing issues of gender and sexual orientation inequalities. As border art emerged, it had to challenge all types of borders. This is the next step in the history of border art for you to discover in the third episode of this podcast. So let's keep walking. Border art, step over the wall. This podcast is a production by States, Villa Albertines magazine. For more information on all Villa Albertines initiatives and programming, please visit villa-albertine.org. This episode features Anne-Laura Emilhat Zari, a political geographer and co-founder of the Anti-Atlas of Borders. Norma Iglesias Prieto, professor emerita at UC San Diego and co-founder of El Colegio de la Frontera Norte. Sarah Soleimani, scholar at UC San Diego and curator of the Occupy Third Space exhibition. Victor Ochoa, activist, muralist and co-founder of Ba Taf Collective. Roberto R. Pozos and Alejandro Morales Riberon, both visual artists and muralists at Chicano Park. The theme song is Remote Control, courtesy of Guillermo Galindo. Music from the RFI Instrumental Database and the YouTube Studio Music Library. Border Art, 
Step Over the Wall is written and sound designed by Odd Emily Judaic.